Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Hello and welcome to The Late Show with me, John B. Uh, It is my absolute pleasure to welcome a very special guest tonight, um, Ian Timbrell, who uh, has a wealth of experience in developing uh, not only inclusive classrooms, but working uh, around relationship and uh, sex education. Uh, so that's going to be the focus for this evening's uh, kind of discussion. Uh, but just before we dive in and before um, I ask our special guest to introduce themselves, uh, just a short message from our sponsor. So this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out the latest releases? Use code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. You can visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. And happy reading to everyone. So, without further ado, welcome to Ian. I can see that he's um, already joined and he's ready and roaring to go. Uh, So, uh, welcome, Ian. Hopefully you can unmute and uh, we can hear you. Hey, John, how are you? Hi, I'm really good. How are you, Ian? Good, thank the the back end of man flu, which of course you know we know is 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 really bad, uh, but feeling oh, no. good and uh, getting getting better. But no, good. Looking forward to to chatting about all these things. Great. Well, you sound it's sounding good voice, so that's always a good thing for radio. Hey, well, <laughs> well, my 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 ten year old he cooks for us every Tuesday, so he cooked me a meal tonight, especially because I was ill. So you know, I've had a, a lovely home cooked meal to to make me feel better tonight. And what was on the menu to help you recover? Oh, a fish pie tonight from scratch as well. It was lovely. I'm not always a fan wow, of fish pie. Wow, nice. But yeah, he did a good job. 
Well, I think when I was 10, I could manage a fish finger, not quite a fish pie. <laughs> no, he's good. he's good. He loves it. I and mean, I hope, you know, be a, a chef and I can retire early, you know, when he's a multimillionaire chef. We'll see. Sounds like a good plan. I like it. <laughs> um, Ian, what's your Twitter handle for listeners? So my Twitter handle is at itimbrel, which is T-I-M-B-R-E-L-L. Just in case um, during the show or after the show, um, people can send you messages or tweet you and ask any kind of follow up questions um, as we go. So uh, can you give our listeners and myself a brief overview of your experiences in education? Yeah, sure. So I've been a teacher for uh, about 17 years. Um, it wasn't my first career choice, actually. My first career choice was I was going to be a doctor. I actually went to medical school for a year and a bit, but that did not work out. Um, mm. um, but uh, yeah, no, I sort of fell into education. It was never really the plan. It was that type of thing. I was unemployed and um, I was asked to go and volunteer in school. And it was one of those things where, you know, within 15 minutes, I was like, oh, my God, this is where I was always meant to be. So I mm. started teaching, worked for about 10 years in the same school, very, very high uh, performing school um, in a, a very very deprived area um, and I absolutely loved it and I got a taste for you know the, our ethos was always we can't let deprivation or high preschool meals stand in the way of our children you know they deserve the best and that was sort of really instilled in me is that you know we need to do the most for, for our kids no matter where they come from um, and then I was, I've been deputy head for the last five years um, and due to some things that we'll talk about tonight I'm sure uh, I left education in January to do to support schools. So I now go around schools across the country talking about RSE, LGBT inclusion uh, and grammar. That's my other like side thing. I'm, I'm a huge grammar geek. Um, people dread sending me stuff because I'm, I'm a massive grammar geek. I'll spot, I'm, I'm that awful person who will spot every mistake. And my, my friends mm-hmm. absolutely love it when I make a mistake. Uh, they always enjoy sending them back to me. Uh, but yeah, so um, yeah, so I left school in January. Um, I've been going around schools and it's, do you know what, it's been amazing, you know, uh, and I miss my class and I miss the staff room. Uh, but, you know, doing this work is so fulfilling and, and I feel very privileged that I'm able to go into so many schools to, to do this work. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about kind of, I suppose we, we'll angle it in two different ways. You'll be able to draw on your experiences, your real experiences in a classroom um, and also kind of from a more advisory point of view um, and really kind of bridge bridge the gap together. Um, just before we kind of um, go and take a deeper dive into this, um, Ian, I like to do with the start of each of my shows um, a section that I'm calling Desert Island <laughs> Desks. Um, so uh, it, it operates in a very similar way to a show of a very similar name. Um, and I wonder what three items could you not do without in education? It's such a cruel question, isn't it? Uh, so, you know, for days I've been going back and forth and, uh, uh, and I'm a big overthinker anyway. So, um, yeah, so I came up, I mean, the main thing which I use when I was teaching in every subject is post-its. I love a post-it, see? I think you can do so much with them, you know, whether you're in grammar, for instance, sentence structure, word structure, if you're in maths, you can, you can move around numbers and things. I used to use it for almost every subject and it's such a simple tool. But I absolutely, yeah, I love a post-it. Um, Love a post-it too. I recently discovered that you can use them for bar modeling. Mind yes. blown. Oh, it's, oh, it's brilliant because, yeah, they're so easy to do. And I see I, in teaching, I think the best resources you do is stuff you don't need to prepare for. You know, I think we in mm. teaching too much, 
certainly think when people start teaching, you know, they spend so much time preparing resources and actually what impact does that have, you know? Um, so yeah, love a post-it. Post-it note number one, love it. Um, so next thing is a new discovery, which is acrylic pens. And I, I know oh. they're amazing. Uh, and I take them to training sessions and they're like these felt tip pens where you can draw on anything. They're even better than Sharpies. And they're my new obsession because they can draw on glass, on like plastic, on paper. And they're really, really good. But yeah, I use them for a lot of stuff. Um, and pupils drawing on different surfaces. They're not washable. Uh, so be careful you use them. But they're, they're really good. Yeah. It, it, every training session I've done with acrylic pens, people have gone in the session and ordered them. Uh, they are, yeah, acrylic pens are really good. They sound like they could be an incredible resource. They also sound like they might be a teacher's worst nightmare in some classrooms. Oh, I, I did. My son is not going near them um, because I uh -huh. dread to think that our house would be covered in all these doodles. Um, yeah, you would have to be very careful how they're used. Um, but yeah, and the last one is, is something that's sort of come up since I left the classroom, which um, I like to start. So I, I train schools on LGBT inclusion and RSE, and I always start with... Um, uh, a competition because teachers love a competition uh, and I love giving really rubbish prizes so uh, I normally go to a charity shop or something like that and get really rubbish prizes and it's really fascinating how teachers are practically frothing at the mouth to win these terrible terrible prizes like last weekend I gave a notebook set which was floral and it looked like something hyacinth bouquet would have and honestly I've never mm. seen a room of teachers so excited to win a rubbish prize <laughs> um, so yeah I can't I couldn't do my training without my rubbish prizes they uh yeah they, they, they're my key component of I think it's why people book me for training now to be honest to see how bad the prize can be in the quiz such a great idea to motivate uh, people, you know, when it's like it's like being in the classroom, you know, giving out. I mean, we don't even give out rubbish prizes. We give out invisible prizes called dojo, <laughs> know. you know, something like that. <laughs> but like, so honestly, with things, the kids, don't we get excited? Any little positive reward. Love it. Thank you, Ian. So we're we're here for the post-it notes, acrylic pens, and rubbish prizes. <laughs> Excellent. I dread start. to think so... now people buy me Christmas presents. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what will happen this year, I think. And you can use them all in your training. Absolutely. So, um, as we mentioned at the top of the show, um, Ian is heavily involved in uh, inclusion and RSE. So a lot of the questioning and kind of our conversation is going to be around that uh, for this podcast. So, Ian, um, kind of just to start us off, we're going to be thinking about effective relationships, um, uh, which are through the lens of kind of the RSE curriculum. Um, and my first question is, what are the key components of an effective relationship? of effective relationship and sex education? You know, I think it, obviously uh, it's been in the news. I mean, this week it's been in the news uh, with announcement by Jilly, uh, inverted commas, announcement by Jillian Keegan. Um, but yeah, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's something that has been talked about a lot in a very negative light, you know, over the last couple of years in the media. You know, there's no talk about positive RSE. It's all negative. Um, but I think that, you know, the first thing, you know, whenever I work with schools and relationships with education, when you're thinking about your lessons, what you're doing, the first thing is with any area of the curriculum, we always make sure purpose. You know, if we're talking about writing, for example, or effective maths, we always talk about purpose. And RSE is absolutely no different. You know, good teaching and learning is mm -hmm. good teaching and learning. So when you're doing your RSC and your lessons, you know, first of all, we need to think exactly why are we doing that? And that can very much direct everything else. 
And sometimes, you know, people are doing it because it's in the curriculum. Well, that's not, we're in 2023, that's not good enough. You know, we need to be very clear, especially with RSE, exactly why we're doing it. And if we don't know why we're doing it, it can lead us down the path of doing things that are inappropriate or just aren't effective. Um, you know, and, and we want the the skills and the knowledge in RSE to really come through. So starting with purpose is, is really, really clear. And also thinking about who are we talking to and making sure that what we're doing is really useful for the children we're doing it for and children and young people. Actually, are we doing it because it's in a textbook, because we've got a worksheet? Are we making sure that we're doing it for that specific audience? Because we all know, like, every class is different, isn't it? You know, every year group's different, every school is different. And if we just take things from a scheme, a scheme can be a starting point and they can be some, you know, really useful stuff. But actually, are we making sure that we're tailoring that for our individuals? So, you know, that why... And that who really so important. If, if we haven't got those right, then, you know, none of the rest is going to work. It's interesting that you um, picked up on kind of the negative talk in in media um, and perhaps from certain groups of uh, parents or certain groups in, in society. Um, how do you think that RSE can be taught in a way that's sensitive to um, all of the kind of stakeholders, thinking students, um, parents, uh, regardless of kind of their beliefs or backgrounds? Yeah, you know, and we've seen over the last few years, there have been some instances of where things have gone wrong uh, because of this. And I think it comes back to that first thing I said is purpose. You know, we need to be really clear about why we're doing this stuff. And that needs to be communicated clearly with the parents. Do, do the parents know why we're doing these things? Do they know the reasoning behind our approach to it, the resources we're using? And, and that has, we have to make sure then that it reflects our school and community. And this is why, you know, schemes can be a very useful resource, but they risk then not reflecting our individual community. Because our individual communities have their own individual challenges. And it might be mm. a particular... Uh, ethnic ethnic makeup or particular re religious makeup or you know incidents that have happened in that area that we need to make sure that our RSC reflects that so working with the parents is, is really really key and knowing your community but we also have to be completely transparent you know Gillian Keegan has come out today and said that schools need to share their RS sex education RSC resources well that's nothing new you know, we've always said that um, and you know that came mm -hmm. out when RSC came out you know it's in the statutory guidance and, you know, we need to be completely transparent. Nothing should be hidden from our parents. And creating that that relationship between the school and the community so that actually we can invite them in. You know, I think if, we, if we're not being totally transparent, we have to think about, well, our, why are we teaching these things? If we, You know, if we're not able to say to parents that we're doing this, then maybe we shouldn't be doing it. But, you know, that, that relationship between the community and the school is so vital. But we also have to stick mm. behind, we have to stand up for what our belief as a school is. You know, every school has their own values. And there's a certain point where we have to go, no, these are our values of the school and this is why we're doing this content. And that, that can mean some quite tough conversations with some parents because of their own issues. But we have to stand by our values as a school and stand up for what we believe in. But yeah, but transparency and, and building that relationship with the community is just vital in this type of stuff. Sure, yeah, and I think it really dispels kind of what's being taught and how it's being taught. Just for those that mightn't be um, overly familiar with the curriculum, Ian, I wonder if you can give a really broad overview of the types of things that um, the curriculum covers. I mean, if you if you uh, looked at the news, you'd swear it was entirely sex ed. 
Um, but actually, sex ed is a really small part. It, it's, you know, it, it's less than 10% of the whole RSE curriculum is that. You know, the vast majority of it is to do with friendships and healthy relationships. It's about how we interact with other people. It's about how we build empathy, learning about diversity of families and and that learning about what the world actually is like and, and how to succeed in a really healthy way you know, learning about how to overcome adversity and things like that. And that's what we sometimes miss with RSE. I think we jump straight with RSE to think it's all about sex and puberty. But that's such a small part of it. Such a small part of our relationships, isn't it? You know, there's there's other part of, of course, you know, those things are important parts of relationships. But actually, when you look at RSE and break it down, the vast majority is to do with friendships, to do with families and things like, you know, um, covering internet safety for example is in there looking at fake mm. news things like that it's a really really broad you know uh, framework uh, and i think we, we do focus too much on the sex bit uh, and not enough on actually what the majority of rsc is yeah um it's interesting i think um i think certainly it does seem to be skewed that way in the media um and and certainly from some of the conversations i can recall having um, as a deputy head last year, uh, and as, as a as a teacher previous to that, around this, it seems to be the area that kind of um, that the sticking point for parents. You know, when you talk around celebrating diversity and difference, um, it kind of I, I I found parents to be more on board with that. But as soon as it comes to the sex education in upper key stage two, that's kind of where the the tricky the tricky parts um, of the conversation started, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I mean but um, you know, look at what sex ed we had, which was probably nothing. Of their in life, yeah. Of, yes. you know, so, so we've got a whole generation of parents who are. There. I mean, ours was uh, very much um, the girls in year seven went for an hour talk while the boys had an extra break, uh, and there was. I remember being in school, and there were all these like myths about what went on in that hour and we never worked it out <laughs> you know it's proper conspiracy theories and you know so we, we do we we have it's a very british thing isn't it to not want to talk about sex and puberty and i think we 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 don't like talking about that and part of the reason is is because we didn't talk about it in school because we weren't given that opportunity so you can understand why parents are you know reluctant and reticent to talk about this stuff when they never had to when they were in school yeah, sure. And I think that's perhaps one of the challenges. Thinking of um, kind of day-to-day teaching, and we may have touched on this a little bit, um, but thinking of day-to-day teaching, maybe from your experience or um, in your role of going around schools and supporting them, um, what are teachers saying some of the real challenges are at the moment? I mean, we sort of touched on one of them. It's this fake news, you know, and this misinformation is massive and it, it, it seeps into schools. Because a lot of our parents had bad experiences in school themselves. And so when they see misinformation and fake news, a lot of them are likely to trust it because they had poor experiences in schools. So actually, they're suspicious of schools in the education system anyway. And so when they see these claims, you know, we're teaching sex in uh, nursery, you know, or a year three, you know, um, age three children are learning about bondage is one I saw a little while ago. You know, um, and so although to most of us, those claims seem to be ridiculous, you know, they seem to be so outlandish, no one would believe them. People do because of their own experiences. 
but also these groups that are spreading this information are very, very good at manipulating people. And they're very good mm. at gaslighting people into feeling guilty if they don't believe it. So we have to, you know, appreciate that parents are, some of them being bombarded by this stuff. And, you know, when they come in with this fake news, the best thing we can do is to inform them and actually show them the truth, uh, but have some empathy with them that, you know, that they're believing this stuff for a reason. Um, you know, and we also see in the media, you know, the media, we, we talked about the headlines, you know, uh, school teachers, uh, how to be a good friend is not going to give headlines. Uh, but, you know, school <laughs> teachers, inappropriate sex ed is going to get headlines. You know, certain newspapers like it more than others. And so they're seeing these stories, for instance, like the school in the Isle of Man, for example, where all these claims are made about what was going on in school. And actually, when the local authority went in, it was all a pack of lies. And it was so exaggerated. None of it was true. But the problem is mud sticks, doesn't it? And once those claims are out there, and they're very clever, the media are, at saying, they don't say this is definitely going in, you know, they say things like a source tells us, or, you know, there have been rumours that. So actually, even if it's found out to be untrue, they can say, well, we never said it was true. And so, again, you know, parents have been given this very negative view of RSE that they're having from, from all mm. sectors. Um, but the other one, you know, the other challenge that I find going into schools is lack of training. And, you know, it's it's so low on the agenda in many schools. You know, teachers are expected to deliver what's really complex, sensitive content, particularly in primary schools. You know, secondary schools, the sensitive stuff such as like sex and consent and things like that generally is taught by specialist teachers. But in primary, you know, we teach everything, mm -hmm. don't we? And particularly with the, mm -hmm. you know, I remember when I started teaching, you'd have the nurse come in to do all the talks and things like that. Well, for lots of us, that money's gone. And, you know, um, so the school nurses, there's now a third of the school nurses that there were before the pandemic. So it relies on teachers. And there is an issue with lack of training. There's an issue with lack of centralised training. Uh, and, you know, the number of schools that I go into where they go, well, I've never had RSC training. I'm like, what have you been teaching for 20 years? Why, why isn't this higher on the priority? Because if this is taught wrong, it can actually be dangerous to our young people. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. And and quite often I hear um people who leave well, leave secondary school and they've kind of been systematically taught English and maths. But actually the stuff that's important to them is relationships and knowing how to get on and feelings and and and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I think it's interesting that the, the, the way that the curriculum is organised and the hierarchy of curriculum really prioritises English and maths and uh, perhaps doesn't as much in, um, in RSE. Um, just to kind of circle back a little bit, Ian, to, you mentioned earlier about fake news, and I'm wondering if you've got any useful thoughts, strategies on what schools, parents can do um, to kind of combat fake news head on. I think the first thing, and I advise staff, when they see this fake news on Twitter, on Facebook and everything, lots of people's first instinct is to challenge it and say it's wrong. And while that might sound like good advice, actually what it does, because if you comment on something, that story is then shown to everyone you follow, particularly on Facebook. And so mm. I just advise people to ignore it because actually what these people want you to do is engage in it because then they it spreads. Whereas actually, if everyone ignored it, it just would disappear because no one would be engaging in it. So that's the first thing I say to staff, you know, as much as you're tempted to go on to these groups, 
and tell them that things are wrong. That's actually what they want. And then it's just by being 100% transparent. You know, our website should be saying everything we're doing. You know, our policies, our curriculum outline, everything. You know, if we're doing sensitive things such as consent, puberty, sex, inform the, the, your parents. Tell them exactly what we're doing. And that, because that's what some of these groups don't want us to do, you see. They, they don't want us to show exactly what we're doing because they know that what we're doing is age appropriate and is needed, is desperate to be needed. So, um, yeah, just being transparent and just not engaging in this toxic dialogue that's going on because these people will never change their mind. You challenging them on social media will not make them change their mind. What they want to do is get you into this conversation because it gets them publicity and it gets them seen. Mm. And what are some of the most um, common myths and misconceptions about RSE, Ian? Bear in mind, this is a this is a family show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 it, it is age appropriate, inappropriateness, and you know it, what, what? There was um, a particular MP released a report to uh, Parliament uh, about inappropriate uh, RSE a little while ago, and some of those organisations weren't even working in schools. And, you know, they, they, they were adult RSE educators. They've never been in schools. They've never touched schools. And so that misconception that any RSE is being delivered in schools just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's in schools. And that's important. That we, that's why we've got to be transparent, because some of our parents might Google RSE and see stuff that is inappropriate for children. But actually, as long as we're not doing it, that's fine. At the end of the day, we can't police the entire internet. But what we can do is police what's going on in our schools. And then also that the RSE, there's a big misconception. Lots of schools that should be an RSE teacher. Well, actually, RSE is a cross-curricular responsibility. And so it, mm. it is the responsibility of all teachers. You might say that certain bits of it, like puberty, like sex ed, are specific teachers. Because actually, they should receive training on that. But the rest of it, to do with friendships, to do with relationships, to do with consent actually is all of our responsibility and it's really important that staff provide that training and that we're all seeing that we're all collectively responsible for developing the social skills of these young people. Yeah and uh, I think it's interesting around kind of taking that a little bit further and thinking about age and stage. Mm. Um, how, how do you think schools can ensure that the, relation, the RSE curriculum is taught in an age and stage appropriate way? I think yeah this is you know there is an issue with age appropriate and age appropriate is really interesting isn't it because if I have a child that's born on the 31st of August and a child that's born on the 1st of September even though they're only a day apart mm -hmm. they'll be taught very different things because they're a school year apart and so I think what you know what age appropriate is really useful for is a guideline it's useful for an overview to go the average seven-year-old needs to do this but that's that's where we've got to be careful that then we're doing sort of a carbon copy. Every seven-year-old should learn this. Well, absolutely not. You know, children have their own individual needs. They have their own individual circumstances. So we need to look at their stage. So, for example, a pupil with ASD, for example, you know, if we're looking at puberty and sex ed, yes, they need to have it around the same time because they're going to go through puberty. But the approach will be very, very different to those. And it's important that we reflect on our children. Another example I give is, you know, if a child is either witnessed or been involved in domestic violence again you know the the way that we approach their RSE education might be very very different to the rest of the class so age is useful you know age is really useful for giving an overview but we need to look at our class 
as individuals and that stage appropriate I feel is far more important and I to be honest you know when I look at the curricula across the UK it all talks about age appropriate but I think stage appropriate is actually far more valuable and far more important and it you know this is where you know a chapter so some schemes out there they give by year group but they're also in their guidance Mm. they say just because it says year one that is average year one you know, you need to look at your pupils and adapt those resources. And, and that's, that's really key. Just like any other part of the curriculum, isn't it? You know, we adapt every other part yeah. of the curriculum. RSE should be no different. Yeah, sure. I think I think the, the only difference in my mind around that, Ian, would be that, like you've already mentioned, that teachers probably feel more comfortable adapting plans for English and math, science, for example, perhaps feel... Um, not as comfortable because of training and CPD or lack of um, with the RSE curriculum. But certainly um, certainly an interesting uh, point to raise there. I, w- I wonder now if we can drill down a little bit further into inclusion, but through the lens of LGBTQ+. Um, so thinking through that lens, Ian, why is it important to create inclusive schools for LGBTQ plus students? I mean, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I, uh, I talk about this a lot. Um, why do we create inclusion for any students? You know, what, why? It's a really interesting question that you've asked, because lots of people ask that for me. And I go, well, why wouldn't you create inclusion for every student? Why, mm-hmm. why are some students not entitled to inclusion? Um, and and so when you say that to people, they go, oh, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, I see that. Um, but we haven't been grown up in that. You know, I grew up in a time of Section 28 when schools weren't allowed to talk about homosexuality. You know, it was it was illegal for schools to talk about it. And it did incredible damage. And, and those who know me and, and follow my social media know that. The school experience I had was dreadful. Secondary school was an awful place. Uh, I belonged to, you know, severe bullying, led to some huge mental health issues that I still struggle with today. And it, the crux of it was, is that I was never allowed to be myself. I was never allowed to explore my identity. I grew up in a world where I was wrong because 90% of people are straight. And so I grew up in a world where I was led to believe that I was broken and that I needed fixing, you know, and that that's the crux of it really, is that we need to stop this othering of groups where children feel like they don't belong and that they're not part of society because the impact on mental health is huge. And, you know, LGBTQ plus pupils growing into adults still have worse mental health than the rest of the general population. And so we need to look at why exactly that is and what we can do as schools to tackle that. You know, we have a huge responsibility. School is not just about English and maths. School is about the well-rounded people and making sure that they come out as, as healthy individuals. Sure. Um, and what do you think can be done? Uh, what can schools actually do to support with that, Ian? You know, I think it's about looking through the lens and, and every pupil should see themselves in the school. You know, every pupil should see it, whether it doesn't matter what diversity you're talking about, whether you're talking about racial diversity, religion, disability, it doesn't matter. Every pupil should first of all see themselves. The representation is so important, you know, actually every child should see a book with a character that they can relate to, should see a family that looks like their family. You know, it was devastating for me when when my son was about seven 
and we were chatting about books in school and he'd never seen a book in school that looked with his look like his family and he'd never seen a book with two dads in it in school and I thought how sad is that that we're not allowing some children to see a world that looks like their world uh, and I just think that's that's the first place we need to start we need to look at the lens of every single pupil in our school so that they see themselves but also that they see people who are different to them because actually that's the best way of tackling discrimination and, and things like that is that they see a world that's different to themselves you know if you've got a predominantly white population you should be putting lots of um, ethnic characters into your stories and books because they're not going to experience it any other way so that you know that that representation and diversity is so important and then as we move on through the school you get into things like role models and I love, you know, putting role models into our education is so vital, but also making sure mm. that they're positive. I mean, the one, you know, the Alan Turing is the one that people love doing Keysage to, right? Uh, they love doing Alan Turing. And Alan yeah. Turing is such an important person in British society uh, in British history. But he was castrated and possibly, we're not sure, but he probably committed suicide. And is that the role model we want to give children? <laughs> is that, you know, you've got a pupil who is... Uh, wondering about their sexuality and that's the image that they get of gay people is that they lead a really sad life and it ends uh, you know really sad so considering our role models is really important that actually they're positive as well that the role models they see aren't just the sad stories that the role models they see are happy ones as well actually can be gay or lesbian or transgender and you can live a happy successful life because that's what we want you know um so i prefer them to look at tim cook you know, Tim Cook is the head of Apple, one of the biggest companies in the world, and he's gay. What a success story that is. And also, his career is not about being gay. He just happens to be a gay man. Um, so having that representation, making sure that it, it, it's positive is, is so important. And then we need to just teach about it. You know, do they know the vocabulary? Do they know the concepts? Do they know what the letters mean? And doing that in an age-appropriate way. So, you know, explicitly teaching these concepts. Uh, it, it's just, just like we teach about racism. Uh, just like we teach yeah. about different types of disability, we need to teach about um, different orientations and gender identities. It's so important. Yeah, and I think there's there's quite a lot in that to, to unpick. Um, I was going to say, I, I threw just... a lot of you then, didn't I? <laughs> I, I, went, I went right on my soapbox then. And... <laughs> I, I, what I really like about that, Ian, is I like your example there about Tim Cook from Apple. And, to, you know, if you're using that as a, a as a role model in school, I can imagine that would be a really powerful way because the the job, the success um, is kind of the the reason, I guess, why teachers would be sharing that. And uh, as a little kind of footnote, it's oh, and this person happened to be gay. Um, but I, I could see that working, you know, like you've like you've said, for all kinds of different reasons uh, across the curriculum. It's almost like when you you know, when it comes to Black History Month and it's kind of um, some schools will um, shoehorn particular, uh, you know, in, important people in prominent people but actually might it have been better to use some of their writing in an English lesson um, throughout the year for example um, and I, th I think careful choice is is um, vital for young people now to to, to see really positive role models um, like you say you know Alan Turing as much as um, as much as we know that he was uh, successful and, and very important, 
um, was around, you know, decades ago. And, and there's more modern ones that children can probably um, relate to a little bit better now. Um, the I, I really also liked your, your point about books in school, and I'd like to touch on this a little bit um, further, just for anyone uh, listening in, in terms of inclusion and LGBTQ+. Um, do any books spring to mind that teachers might be able to get their hands on and, and perhaps use for RSE lessons or to embed across the curriculum? Yeah, you know, I think the stories are a, a really useful way of doing it. I think what sometimes you want to do is put in books about this stuff. And actually what that can do is sort of draw too much attention to it in a way, I suppose. You know, actually what we want to do is inclusion and diversity and these type of things is not create an issue out of it, but usualize it. I don't I don't like the term normalize because um, so Sue Sanders, who set up um, LGBT History Month, um, says this about we don't we shouldn't say normalize because that means the opposite of it is abnormal, which this mm. is not. Uh, but usualize, you know, is, is the way you want to do it. And uh, an example like is um, the book Glitter Boy by Ian Eagleton, and which is a story, you know, great for Key Stage Two and Key Stage Three is about a boy who had homophobic bullying, and it's a beautiful story, really well written and accessible for children and they they read that story and really understand in in an age-appropriate way what some children go through and mm. you know there's they can see that empathy um another one that i love is um ivy aberdeen's letters to the world which is about a girl who loses a store a letter um she she writes a letter for the first time to a girl telling her she fancies her and it's lost in a hurricane uh, and and the the whole story is mostly actually about her family's struggle in the hurricane, but it's just this is a little thread in the background of the her challenge and her struggle to come to terms with her identity is done in such a beautiful way. But then you've got other books, you know, like um, so uh, the last Firefox uh, by Lee Newbury, for example, is a story about a boy who discovers this animal who's the last Firefox, and he just happens to have two dads. So it's not about two dads it's not about that they just happen to in the background and that's another beautiful way of doing it when we're looking at a book sometimes actually we want to bring these concepts to the forefront but sometimes actually it's just about representation it's just about showing that there's diversity in our world I like that yeah I really like the concept of usualizing things and um, the last Firefox just to draw out uh, that a little bit further um, really great uh, a kind of um usualizing let's say uh yeah. and you know they, that's not the focus but actually um it's it's almost a footnote i suppose um is kind of how my mind thinks of it um all right so schools have got all of these in place in, in an ideal world you know they've got a really robust rse curriculum um but some schools are still reporting that actually there's homophobic or transphobic bullying um what can schools do Ian, uh, to try and challenge that i mean the thing is i think what we you know you know when you hear these schools say we don't have bullying in our school i say do you not or are you just not seeing it mm. and, and sometimes it's you know all schools have bullying and but it's how you deal with it isn't it and it's how you intervene as quickly as possible um and so 
what we need to do is have a zero tolerance. Um, and, and the way that I look at it is I very much when I work with schools on this stuff, I ask them what their policy for racism is. So I go, if you had a racist incident, what would you do? And they'll, you know, schools will help me. Well, you know, so we, we investigate it. There's a consequence. They're re-educated. Parents are informed. We, you know, we reported to our trust or our local authority. And I go, great. What's your, what's your policy for if there's a homophobic incident? And they say, oh, well, um, 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 and they get detention. And for some reason, even though they're both protected characteristics under the Equality Act, we don't look at them in the same way. There are very few schools that I've worked with who actually put them on the same level. And they should be. They're, you know, whatever is your policy of racism should be the same policy for homophobic bullying, for transphobic, for ableist bullying. Any protected characteristic, there needs to be, first of all, a zero tolerance policy and that every member of staff is aware of what it looks like what to do in that situation where do you report it because that's the only way you know really that we're going to be able to tackle this is that everyone realizes how important it is and then actually you know when we are dealing with that incident and, and whoever instigated that that bullying there needs to be a consequence for them we know that but there also needs to be re-education because children aren't born with discrimination it's developed and so what we need to do is educate them. And it might be, you know, taking a step back and looking at our curriculum. Have we got role models? Have we got representation? But actually, do we need to have a bit of training for that pupil, you know, a bit of teaching for that pupil on diversity and inclusion? And maybe even the parents. You know, I've worked with schools where actually it's the parents that needed education because it's filtered through to the children. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, those, you know that, I think that's really important that there has to be a consequence. We can't tolerate it. But actually... You know, these are children at the end of the day They, you know, they develop these. It's our responsibility to help them develop these well-rounded views. We need to educate them uh, on, on actually what diversity is. And because probably the bullying has come from misconceptions. Yeah, perhaps. Um, and yeah, I think education is really the way forward. And like I say, the usualization of it, of it not being a big deal in classrooms, not being a big deal when it's mentioned, um, goes some way to kind of off, offset that. Um, OK, um, we'll stick with the kind of LGBTQ plus theme, but just a quick message from our sponsor. So this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Make sure you don't miss out. You can visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. So, so far, we have um, touched all kinds of different areas on RSE and inclusion and LGBTQ+. Um, and the next question, Ian, is a little bit blunt. I hope you, I hope you <laughs> don't mind. Um, Bracing myself should, now for this. Brace yourself. <laughs> Should schools have pride events? Ooh. Now, on, do you want a one-word answer? Um, yes. Oh, you're, not, you're, not get, get, you're not getting one, so I'll interrupt <laughs> you there. <laughs> but it can come with an exemplification behind it. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is the thing. I think people, um, <laughs> when they ask me this, I think they, they think because, you know, I'm a gay man uh, and I, I love pride. I take my son to pride. Uh, I think that I, and I train on LGBT inclusion in schools, they think I'm going to go and go, yes, every school has to have a pride. Uh, and that's not the answer, really. Uh, you know, should schools have a pride? 
if it's right for you is my answer you know um because actually the question when a school says to me like should we have a pride event the question I ask them straight away ask them back is why do you want one um and that stumbles people sometimes um mm. because I think what what you know in social media they've seen these amazing pride events that have gone on in other schools and they want to replicate it but what they've missed is the the journey to get to that and the discussions about the reasons and the the conversations around what the content is so you have to do a pride if it's right for you Pride isn't, pride is at the end of the day, is a protest about equal rights. And so I think we need to be careful. Are we doing a pride in school or are we doing a celebration of diversity? Because those things are two very different things. Um, So, you know, I think we, you know, you have to do it if it's right for your school. Don't do it because a school down the road did it or a school on Twitter did it. Do it because it's right for you. I think that's a really useful distinction there around pride being a, a protest for equal rights. Um, I should imagine, and you know, I can't be certain of this, but I should imagine that more schools want to go down the celebration and inclusion um, route in order to kind of celebrate um, difference and diversity. Um, I, I think listeners, that, that's made my ears really prick there, Ian, um, of the distinction between pride and celebration. Yeah, and that's it, you know, and I'm not saying you shouldn't call it a pride, but just be very well aware of what you are actually doing. Um, because I think it's too often pride can be seen as a party. Uh, and it is fun. I love a pride. I mean, I, I plan my outfit weeks and months in advance. Um, and, you know, and it is really good fun. But also it is about a campaign for equal rights. And so I think we need to be making sure the, the rationale behind what we're doing, because it has huge benefits to have a, a, some sort of pride celebration in school. Um, but yeah, making sure we know why exactly we're having it and what we're doing is really important. Sure. And given the makeup of, of many of the schools across um, England, across the UK and, you know, across the world, really, how can schools make sure that any pride celebrations uh, are inclusive for all children, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, disability, etc.? Absolutely. And this this is where I sometimes have issue with calling it pride because, you know, in, certainly in primary schools, the, most pupils don't know their sexuality when they're in primary schools anyway. So actually a celebration of diversity should just be a celebration of who you are. And, you know, come to school exactly as you want to address. We're going to do activities which celebrate your uniqueness, whether that is your race, your ethnicity, your religion, uh, disability um, or your identity. What we're going to do is we're going to do a day that's just celebrating uniqueness. I and mean, that that straight away by removing that pride word changes it, you know, to a celebration day or something like that um, to actually we, what we want to do is celebrate that everyone is unique, everyone is individual and we should all respect that and actually celebrate everyone's individuality because how boring would the world be if everyone was the same? And then that that's the key there. Now, secondary schools, it's slightly different um, and some secondary schools will have, a, you know, a gay pride and LGBT pride. But also, I, but I would ask them that question is going, how are you ensuring that you're including everyone? And what majority do is just invite everyone and say, look, you don't have to be LGBTQ to come to this Pride. This Pride is a celebration for everyone and everyone is welcome. And, and that's the really important thing. You know, when, when I go to Pride, so many of my straight friends come 
uh, and it's 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 wonderful because at the end of the day, we're all cel- we want to celebrate and we want to campaign for a world where we are all able to be who we are and we're all able to be ourselves. Um, so yeah, just making sure that you're not pigeonholing it and you're not excluding anyone is so important. Sure, and just to play devil devil's advocate on that, if schools went down that route, could they uh, be met with a bit of resistance around um, a celebrating uniqueness day? Because particularly in <laughs> primary, it might be something that would should be celebrated every day. Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? And that that again comes back to my first point: is about why you having it. And I, I was in a, so my very first school uh, that I was in for 10 years did a pride a little while ago and it was a massive success uh, and they had parents in and it, it was in primary school. It was beautifully done. The whole school got involved in it. But what you didn't see was that the journey that they've come on over the last five or six years, you know, this wasn't an event they just threw. They'd worked with the community on LGBT inclusion over years and years, gradually building up and almost like pride should be, a like pinnacle event of a journey that shouldn't be where you start because you you are just inviting in opposition if you're if your community is not ready for that uh it, it can actually cause more problems uh th- than you possibly would want so being careful that is your community ready for it uh, and having that the messaging to the community of exactly why you're having it is it, just crucial because what you want it to be is that everyone loves that day you know families parents children teachers teaching assistants everyone you want everyone to know exactly why you're having it and and to see the positives in it but that's a journey and for a lot of schools it's a long way off and that's nothing to be ashamed of but it's just recognizing that we're all in a different point in this journey yeah and i think it's it's like anything isn't it you know if you want if you want to be transparent about what you're doing in Math, science, RSE, um, having parents who are informed, who understand, um, goes a long way actually to to developing the relationship. And longer term, I think that open and honest relationship can lead to to really great things in RSE, but with with other areas of the curriculum uh, as well. Um, okay, just that uh, we've got maybe um, twenty minutes or so. Uh, Ian, uh, just the next section really uh, that I would like to talk about um, kind of operates within the LGBTQ plus realm, but really focuses in on trans. So when we're talking about trans, um, just so we can uh, let listeners know, um, what do we actually mean? And this is really important, is do people know what trans is? Mm. Uh, do people know what transgender is? And I, I was having a chat with someone the other day, actually, about how lots of our language in the past has been subsumed into this one term. So transsexual, cross-dresser, things like that, you know, have, have, have all been subsumed into this one. And I think it's, to me, it's caused uh, a problem in a sense of we're finding it far harder to actually describe what people are. Um, but actually, someone who is transgender, um, if we don't, it depends whether from trans or transgender. So transgender is someone who has um, uh, gender dysphoria, which means that they, they don't identify with the body, the physical body that they're in. And that's a very, very small subset of the population. It's, it's less than one, it's about 1%, just under 1% of the population. But then we have this trans 
plus umbrella, which also includes things. It includes people who just uh, aren't conforming to the, the binary of gender. So aren't necessarily conforming to male and female. For instance, someone who's non-binary, so who doesn't identify with the gender of male and female, or someone who is gender fluid, who feels that their gender moves in different ways. And, and this is why I think that sometimes, particularly on social media, because these terms have all been lumped in together, there's a lot of confusion around actually what we're talking about. Um, and it can lead to a lot of misunderstandings and miscommunications. But it's important, yeah, the trans umbrella is anyone who is not necessarily conforming to the traditional view of male and female. But that transgender is someone with gender dysphoria. Mm. And how can schools teach about gender identity, including trans, um, in a way that's respectful and inclusive to all students? And I think it, it's being clear what we mean by teach about gender identity, um, mm. because, you know, generally, certainly not until a lot later in school, you don't need a gender lesson. You know, what we need to be doing in foundation phase and foundation stage is, is actually dispelling lots of the gender stereotypes. It doesn't matter whether you're a boy or girl or non-binary or trans or anything, but actually you can play with whatever toys you want to play with. You can have whatever hair you want. You know, you can wear whatever uniform you want. Um, you know, schools shouldn't be labelling boys and girls uniform. You wear the, the uniform that you are comfortable in. And actually avoiding, if, the problem is with introducing some of this terminology too early, is that we can put labels on children. With actually what they what we should be doing is creating an environment where pupils feel comfortable to be themselves and then when appropriate we can introduce the terminology so you know what we want out of it is that they tell us who they are not the other way around that we're not putting things onto them so being very careful what do we mean by teaching about gender identity now you know upper key stage two you know when we start probably talking about things like transgender and non-binary it's being careful that you're actually giving a really balanced view of this that it is contentious. And I think if we are doing a balanced view of things, it is important not to say, well, this is fact for everyone, that gender, this is what gender is and so on. It's important that we talk about it in a way that this is something that is divisive in society. And you're going to see different opinions on social media. What we're gonna do as educators is talk to you about all of the information so that you can make an informed decision yourself and you might see yourself in this, but you need to tell us who you are. Um, but, you know, really thinking through what, what is the messaging we're giving to pupils and at what time is really important and might be different for different schools. You know, what's right for one school isn't right for another. And what's right for one cohort isn't right for another. But you need to be very clear on exactly what you're teaching in each year group and, and why. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think as well, you know, you mentioned the different types there. Um around kind of transgender and trans plus. I wonder if just for listeners, you could um, kind of describe the difference between sex and gender. Yeah, and again, you know, this is something that we need to be careful, the messaging that we give. So I give a very factual when I teach about this stuff. Um, you know, sex is your biological characteristics, which is defined by uh, your genitals, hormones, and DNA generally. So it's your physical characteristics. Uh, and there are two sexes. Uh, so there is intersex as well, which is not a third sex. That's very important. But someone who's intersex has physical characteristics that don't fit into what we'd expect from male or female. Um, but generally, they're assigned a sex. 
So that, that's the set. Sex is all to do with your physical characteristics. And then gender is the socially constructed things that we have. So this changes depending where you are in the world, this changes where you're in history, but it's what we would associate with men, women, etc. Now, this is where the contention happens. And lots of people say, well, gender actually doesn't exist or that gender is very um, stereotyping and we should avoid it and it's actually quite regressive. And so if you are teaching about gender, it is really important. If, you, if they're old enough to be taught about gender, it's also really important that you teach them that this is a contentious issue. It is important that we don't go in saying this is fact and this is what everyone thinks. Because exactly. actually we're straight away setting them up to fail because then they'll see videos on social media that disagrees with you. And actually what we need to do as educators is give them a real view of the actual world. And it, the reality is in the actual world that very much people very much disagree with gender um, and what it means, particularly at the moment. Yeah. Um, and you see it all the time in, in the media. Um, yeah. You know, Piers Morgan springs to mind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's certain people who I just, you know, I swear this is what they spend their entire life talking about. Go, How do you have time? How do you, have you don't seem to work. Uh, all you seem to talk about this is stuff. But it is, you know, we see with some huge celebrities talking about this stuff. And it is because, you know, my, my Twitter feeds is full of it talking about it. And that's not just because of people I follow. It, it, mm. There is a huge discourse online. Um, uh, and it's important that, that when we are talking about gender, that we are realising it is an issue in our society today that is contentious and is difficult for some people to talk about. Um, I'm going to be a bit candid now, Ian, and... Um, and... Uh, I don't know if I handled this situation as well as I could have last year as um, deputy head and acting head teacher um, towards the end of the year, um, a little, uh, a child came to have a look around the school and um, their parents had pulled me to one side. I'm trying to be very careful with the language that I use. Their parents had um, pulled me to one side at the end of the tour and had said that their child was trans. And mm. um, they told me that um, their child, their child's sex was um, male, uh, but that the child identified uh, their gender was more feminine than that and um, could, he, th this child used he, her pronouns. Um, no, they didn't. Used um, he, she, him. Her. No, no. Used oh, he, yeah. him, he, him pronouns, but wanted to dress in a skirt and tights. Yeah. And um, all that I could say was we're very inclusive and um, would would support us as much as we possibly could. We would work with the parent and make it work. Um what advice, because I am hearing of other leaders in education, mm. other teachers, um, kind of having this conversation more and not really knowing what to say or what to do. Um, I'm just interested in kind of what your advice would be on a on a on something like that. Yeah, yeah, and I want to put people's mind at rest in a way that this is this is increasingly common. And the way that I deal with, with the, the parents is talk to them about what they mean by the language they're using. So, for example, what do they mean by um, the gender? What do they mean by identity? So, for example, 
if that child just wants to wear in inverted commas the girl's uniform well actually saying to them, we don't have a girl's uniform we have uniform choices mm. um you know um if they want to you know for example i had one a little while ago where um a parents brought a pupil to school um in nursery and said they were trans because they were playing with girls toys now that pupil might very well be trans but my, my the question that we asked the parent was, what do you mean by girls' toys? There's no such thing as girls' toys. And, mm. uh, you know, it, it is, it puts schools in a very difficult position because at the end of the day, it is their child uh, and they're entitled to bring up their child they see fit. However, I would be asking those questions of exactly what do you mean by this language? Because at the end of the day, the only person, and all, all you know, the LGBTQ community is exactly the same. The only person who can tell you if they're trans or if they're gay or if they're bi is that person themselves. No one else knows what's going on inside that person's head. Um, and so, yeah, you just need to ask the questions exactly what do they mean? Um, and, and I would be asking that question about the uniform. We don't have a girl's uniform because you shouldn't have a girl's uniform. It should just be two options and they can choose, but there's not a uniform. We just have different options. But if they, you know, are asking, this is why we need the trans guidance, particularly to, to support schools as well, uh, whether it'll ever appear. God knows. Uh, it might even take a new government for it to appear. But this is <laughs> not getting political at all there. But actually, you know, at the moment, if they are saying that they would like these pronouns used and, and, and so on, they are entitled to that. Um, but it puts schools in a very, very difficult position where we and you know, schools generally aren't trained on this stuff. Uh, and it, mm -hmm. it's, it's putting a responsibility on schools that we're not given the support needed from the powers that be. Um, mm -hmm. Now, Wales is due to come out with its trans guidance in the next couple of weeks. And it'll be interesting to see when that comes out, whether it kickstarts England to finally reach theirs after about two years of, of dragging their heels. Yeah, there, there might be a lot of copying and pasting going on. I, I wonder, yeah, and part of me wonders if that's what they're doing, if they're waiting, you know. I just think, oh, God, you know, and this is the thing, you know, it's, it, it is complicated for for schools, it's complicated for parents. But I think, yeah, just, just talk to the parents, talk to them, find out exactly what they mean, how do they arrive at these decisions, get a really clear picture, but then just put the child in the centre of it all. Uh, and actually what what is in the best interest of this child in, in this situation and if you know mm. if, if schools are finding that they're not sure what to do get in touch with me uh, you know it's very difficult in these situations to give you very generic advice because in these situations every case is very different sure. um you know and i'm yeah. happy to talk to people if they get in touch with individual situations because actually that's far easier because you get the whole you know story uh, and that's why i'd say or you know if you've got a trust where you've got a specialist in there talk to someone don't don't feel like you're on your own with this stuff you are definitely not on your own this is going on in schools all across the country sure um we touched on pronouns there ian and um do teachers are teachers required to um refer to children by their preferred pronouns oh you're going oh god you've ended them with like mic drop questions haven't you um <laughs> this is the thing there is no solid guidance either way but what i would say to you is if a pupil asked you to refer to them by a particular name and using their other name 
you know, if it was a nickname or a shortened name and they told you, please don't refer to me by that name because I don't like it, you wouldn't ignore that. You, you would you mm. would use the new name. And I think the same with pronouns. If it's going to save the child distress, then just use the pronouns. It's not that challenging. But but be honest with the children. If a pupil is old enough to talk to you about changing their pronouns, be honest with them and say, look, I'm really sorry. I This is all new to me. I'm going to make mistakes and I'll just apologise. But this is all new to me. Be honest with the children. You know, I think sometimes we underestimate actually how much we can talk to them about this stuff. Don't be afraid to tell them that you you know you're going to make mistakes that you'll sometimes get it wrong. Never be afraid, but just think about that pupil. You know what what are you doing for that pupil's well being? What what is going to make them feel comfortable in your classroom and make them feel like they are important to you? Sure, yeah, and I think that's a really nice way of, of framing that. Really, um, just to just to finish us off, this is a bit of a mic drop uh, question, <laughs> I'm afraid. Ian. Um, and I've, I have recalled hearing uh, of a, an incident, I think it was in a secondary school, where a child had um, gone into school and the teachers had all kind of agreed um, to call this child by their preferred pronouns. The child had came out as trans, but parents weren't aware. Um, and the school kept it confidential and didn't inform parents. I'm just wondering if any listeners either now or um, when they listen on streaming services, um, where do schools stand on that? What advice is there out there for kind of parents and that kind of confidentiality in school? Is that even a thing? Um, yeah, I don't know I, what, I, your, yeah. what your thoughts around that. And this is the type of thing which the transgender guidance will hopefully, if it ever materialises, will cover. Um, the th- so the you know the thing is what we've got to remember is when a pupil comes out to you, uh, that is not a safeguarding issue. Uh, a pupil being LGBT is not a safeguarding issue, but how they are treated might be. So you're not obliged straight away to tell everyone if a pupil comes out to you unless you feel they are at risk. But what I always say is have a conversation with that child about who wants to know. And if they don't want particular people to know, it's so important you get to the bottom of why. Chances are it's just going to be because they're not ready yet. But we should always be working with that young person to get to telling people, you know, because actually that's what's healthy for them. You know, I know from personal experience, living a double life is exhausting. It's not good for your mental health. And actually what we don't want to do is to build a culture where pupils aren't being public about it. They're not telling anyone because that's not good for them. So we always need to, if people come out to you, there is a responsibility to respect their wishes of of who should know, but we need to work with them to actually accept their identity uh, and to tell other people. Now that becomes more complicated with transgender because of course, if you've got some people calling them by a new name and pronouns what I'd say to them is has someone talked to that child about the fact their parents will find out and normally the answer is no and I think actually again we're not giving these kids the credit that they deserve we need to be realistic about them and I've worked with schools where this has happened and the parents have found out through gossip and it's been far worse you know than if the pupil we'd supported the pupil to be honest with their parents. It's really dangerous. It's putting schools in a very dangerous position if we're asking 
if we're, we're having one identity in school and another at home. So I think we need to have that honest conversation with that young person about, I appreciate you're going through a difficult time and I appreciate this is a journey for you and we'll help you through that journey. However, if we are using pronouns, et cetera, in school and your parents don't know, they are going to find out. Um, and, it, and I, you know, it's, I, I, as a parent myself, you know, I'd be devastated if that's the way I find out. Of course, it's about the, the child first and we have to think about the child first, but we also think have to think about the repercussions if that information gets out uh, through gossip and actually what damage that could do to the child and parents relationship it is really important that we, we think of as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it, again, it's a complicated situation, but we need to be having those honest conversations with our young people. If they're old enough to come out, as this thing, they're old enough to have these conversations about actually the complications that could happen. Yeah, and I think it comes back to what you were saying earlier around transparency and, and just being, mm. you know, as crystal clear as as, as you can. Um, thank you, Ian. Uh, we have uh, covered quite a lot of ground tonight. You know, we've talked <laughs> about um, RSE, inclusion, LGBTQ+, should schools have pride events and fake news, uh, and, and kind of finishing there with, um, a little bit more depth around uh, the trans. Um, if you're just for our listeners' sake, Ian, if you could kind of crystallise or summarise one one key bit of advice, one takeaway from our discussion today, um, what would that be? I think if I I think back to myself when I was in school. And what didn't happen when I was in school is teachers and the education system didn't think what it was like to be me in school. And I think if you can do one thing to improve the inclusion of your classrooms and your school, put yourself in the place of those children. Put yourself in the place of what it's like to be them growing through uh, your school. And if we're asked them to hide, if we're asked them to hide who they are and we're not given the space to be who they are, then is, is that the school we really want to create? And I'm sure the answer to all that is no. So let's make our schools places where everyone can be themselves uh, and everyone can, you know, learn who they are in an open and, and welcoming environment. Thank you, Ian. And thanks so much for joining me today. Um, I know that so many of our listeners will have found that really useful and informative today. Um, your passion and, uh, and kind of commitment to inclusion is something that is much needed in schools. Um, so keep flying, um, no pun intended, keep flying the flag um, <laughs> and, um, uh, and banging the drum of inclusion in RSE. Um, but thanks once again for joining us and um those you shared your Twitter handle at the start so people can um kind of come at you with questions, messages, support and advice. Um you can contact Ian and I know that you'll be you'll be very open to um to being contacted. Yeah, thank you very much. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And yeah, if anyone needs any advice or any direction, just please please get in touch. Thanks Ian. Take care. Thanks and um thanks thanks now and to um all of the TTR listeners, uh, please tune in again soon and uh, we look forward to continuing the discussion uh, at a later date. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.